Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us many exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. Before we open up God's word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come together today because we have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. We have read in the scriptures of his uh, high priestly prayer in John 17 that we are to be sanctified by means of truth, that your word is truth, and that from Genesis to Malachi in the Hebrew scriptures and from Matthew to Revelation, this reality that there is absolute truth that is true for all people at all times in every nation, every peoples, every tongue. And this is the, and the foundation of truth is your word, for you are our creator. You made us who we are, what we are as human beings. You have made the world what it is, and the introduction of sin and evil is the result of the bad decisions of Adam and Eve. In your grace, rather than destroying your creation, you have provided a perfect plan of forgiveness, of redemption that is pictured and uh, foretold throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and through the New Testament it is explained and made clear. And so, Father, as we take the time this week and next week to focus on the birth of Yeshua, the Messiah, our Savior, We pray that you would help us to understand what the Word has said about him, that we may have such a greater understanding and capacity for appreciating uh, why we come together uh, to worship at this time. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We come together today, the focal point for this week is on answering the question, why do we celebrate Messiah Mass, for that is what it refers to. The English word Christ is a transliteration of the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah, the anointed one. There were different people anointed, has the idea of being ceremonially appointed to a particular mission or a particular task. But it came to be mostly associated with the promises, especially in the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, uh, and that he gives such detailed prophecies about this coming one. But it's not limited to just what Isaiah wrote. They are throughout all of the scriptures in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so I want to talk about this a little bit to answer this particular question. On that first Christmas morning, as we sang in our initial hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the messengers of God, for that's what angel means, it's just a word for messenger, whether you're talking about the uh, Hebrew word or the Greek word, it just means messenger. And a messenger initially was sent to speak into, to the shepherds in the field and to make an announcement. And then he was joined by other angels. The text says this is what they said. There's a Greek word for singing. It's not here. It's what they said. There's no evidence that they sang. But that's been the tradition. So just... You can reserve that for a trivia contest. So the scripture tells us this. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, 
we're told that this angelic messenger said to them, do not be afraid, because when they appeared, they were just scared to death. They were terrified. They, you know, the the tradition was that if God appeared to you or an angel appeared to you, it's probably to take you home. So they just thought they were all about to die. And so he says, don't be afraid, but pay attention. Listen to me. For I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people, not just to the priests, the Levitical priests, of whom these shepherds were most likely part of, but also the Jewish people and Gentiles, to all people. That was promised and prophesied in various places in the Old Testament that the Messiah of Israel was not just coming for the Jewish people, but he was coming to provide redemption for the entire world. So he says, pay attention, for I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. For today the Savior is born. It's interesting the way the King James translates it. Today is born the Savior. Uh, The subject of the verb is the Savior. So that should be moved up to the front. The Savior is born, the one that has been anticipated. He's born in the city of David. We know that that's important. The city of David actually applied to either Jerusalem or Bethlehem. David was from Bethlehem, but David reigned from Jerusalem. And this is a reference to Bethlehem, as stated earlier in the uh, account in Luke 2, and is prophesied in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Ephrah, and that that would be uh, how one way in which they could identify the coming of, of the Messiah. And so the uh, messenger says, today is born the Savior in the city of David. He is Messiah, Mashiach, Christos. He is Messiah the Lord. What a phenomenal thing to hear. And then he says, and this will be the sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in strips of cloths lying in a manger. Now, we have to remember that when the angelic messenger announced this that and called him Messiah, called him the Son of God, uh, the only way that they had of knowing anything about the Messiah was from the Hebrew Scriptures. The only way they would know this was from those same books that we have that we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that is comprised of 39 books in the English structure and order because we break up some of the uh, individual books that are in the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew Bible has 22 or 24, depending on how it's broken down. But it's the same It's the same books. It's the same information. And that was all that they had. That was the only revelation they had about the Messiah and how to identify the Messiah, and why it was necessary for the Messiah to even come. And that's what we're focusing on, is why do we celebrate Messiah Mass? Why do we celebrate the birth of the Messiah? Why did he come? What was his significance? And the only way we can really understand it, as they did, is to look at the Hebrew Scriptures, to look back in and see what was what they would have known, what they would have understood. In the next couple of verses, this single messenger is joined by an army. That's the Greek word. It means an army, just like the English word host is an archaic word for an army. So uh, literally translated, it means there was uh, this uh, heavenly army praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, some of you are, have other translations. There are some translations that say on earth, uh, peace, um, to, uh, I've forgotten how, how they translate it. I don't read that very much. On, on earth, uh, good, um, peace to men with whom God is well pleased. That's how they translate it. And that is found in some manuscripts. But it is not found in the vast majority of manuscripts, uh, the reading we have. And they they want to go that way because, well, the argument is that, is a theological argument, 
that that uh, it is only for um, for those who are already focused on God that they're going to have peace. Well, that's that's true, but that's that's a misinterpretation of what is going on here. The better reading is goodwill toward men. We must be reminded that it, this word goodwill, Eudekia, is often a reference to that which is God's blessing, God's goodwill, God's grace to men. And so we have passages like 1 Timothy 2.3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And verse 4 goes on to say, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is God's desire. He wants all to be saved. He's not making it difficult. He wants all to be saved. And other passages talk about how he has such patience and long-suffering because the longer he waits before he brings things to a close, the more that will be saved. And so God is long-suffering, and he is patient in this way. And what this announcement is really saying is that uh, this one who has come will bring peace, not the kind of peace that means the absence of armed conflict, the absence of wars, but he would bring the basis for peace, which is peace between God and man. We have a passage in Romans 5.1 that summarizes this work. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been declared righteous, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to pay attention to how that's structured. We're declared righteous first, logically, and because we're declared righteous, we have peace with God. I want to key in on that word righteousness today as we uh, go through some of these passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. The book of Job, I believe, was probably the first book, maybe Moses wrote it, we don't really know who wrote this book of Job, but I believe it's the oldest and first for a variety of reasons. But this is the story of a man who goes through some serious, significant adversity and suffering. He does so as part of displaying evidence of his love for God, because God has pointed him out to Satan and said, consider Job. And... um Satan says, well, the only reason he worships you is because you give him all these things. He's the richest guy around, and he has all these children and everything, but let me just have my way with him, and he'll be cursing you before long. And so Satan, through a couple of different uh, stages, takes away his uh, children, his wealth, his possessions, leaves him with a wife who just says, just curse God and die. But he refuses to do that. He blesses God. And then he has three friends when he's lost his health and he's just sitting there in absolute physical pain and misery. They come up. We all wish we had three friends like this. We probably do. And they all tell him that all this suffering is just because of something he did. And over and over again in, in Job, it says that God says that Job is upright and blameless and he follows me. So God's not blaming him. He's, he's showing Satan that here, even in suffering, godly people trust God, trust Christ. Even if they don't understand it, they trust God. And one of the men, one of his friends, though, and each of the friends said several things that are true and some things that are not true. But he asked this question in Job 25.4. He says, how then can man be righteous before God? See, that's the question. How can we be righteous before God? How can we as corrupt sinners, as those who are far from perfect, ever measure up to the absolute perfect standard of God? A lot of people think they can do it through following rigorous rules and regulations. Other people think that it's just being strictly moral. Others think it's good intentions. There's lots of different options. But the thing is, that doesn't always work. This word for righteous is the word we'll trace through a number of passages today. Uh, it is the word sadek, that is the uh, verb form, and it means to be just or to be righteous or declared righteous. It is used often in a 
forensic term. That ought to be a term that any of you should know by now. Some people accuse me of using big words. But if you watch NCIS or CSI, any of the permutations of that shows that are always talking about forensic analysis, you know it has something to do with crime and justice and and judgment. So that's what this is talking about. It is a judicial issue. And uh, we are declared righteous, Scripture says. We are not made righteous. God imparts to us righteousness. He, I mean, excuse me, he imputes to us righteousness. He does not impart righteousness to us. How does he do that? It's a question that we need to understand. So first, the problem. Here we have God, the triune God, the creator God. We are told in Scripture that he is perfectly righteous. That is the standard of his character. He is the standard. Righteousness has to do with conformity to a standard. Justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. So we're told that he is just. Abraham said, how shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That is before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he recognizes that Number one, this God is omniscient. He knows all of the knowable. You you can't fool him. You can't trick him. You can't try to shade the truth. He knows everything. So when he makes a decision, it's going to be based on his perfect righteousness. And we'll see the passages that teach that. Across the way, we now have man who is fallen. He is sinful. He lacks righteousness. He is minus R for righteousness. And he lacks justice also. I didn't put the minus there, but it should be there. It's tzaddik. So that's each human being. So we can't measure up. We're born spiritually dead, uh, scriptures teach. And we'll see that, that, that as Isaiah says, all of us. Notice Isaiah, this great prophet to the Jewish people, says all of us. He includes himself in that. And you'd think that people would think, well, you know, Isaiah, if you're not righteous, how in the world can we ever be righteous? And that's his point. All of us have become like something unclean. And all of our righteous acts, not our unrighteous acts, not our sins, he says all of our our very best, our tzedakah, the best that we can do, all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. So how is it that we can be declared righteous? That's the real issue. That's what the coming of the Messiah was uh, all about in one sense. So we're just going to break it down into about eight different um, points as we go through this. First of all, God created each of us to have a personal and intimate relationship with him. God created you because he wanted to have a personal relationship with you. God is capable of having a personal relationship because God is a personal God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God who was worthy of friendship. Abraham was called the friend of God. He has all of the attributes of a person. He thinks, he reasons, he uh, communicates, he has um, expresses desires, expresses his will. And in Genesis one twenty seven, he we read that he created us as a counterpart to him, as a finite counterpart to him. He created us in his image and likeness. The text says in order that we might have a personal, intimate relationship with him. So Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So that every human male, every human female is created in the image of God. It is that immaterial makeup of our soul. We, we are finite representatives of an infinite personal God, and so we are able to have uh, have that relationship uh, with him. So human beings have value because we're created as a finite 
reflection of God, and also because he created us to rule over his creation. Now, that was lost. That was marred because of sin. But he created us for this uh, relationship, and he demonstrates his omniscient intellect, which is part of his personhood, in his creation. If you take the time to read, uh, go to Institute for Creation Research, read some of the science now uh, that is behind uh, a understanding of uh, literal creation viewpoints based on science. Uh, Darwin did, had no idea what was going on inside of a molecule. But today we realize there's an, an incredible amount of information inside of every molecule, and we'll probably figure out that those uh, bits of information probably have uh, even smaller particles. God put all of that together. So he is a person, and, and that's reflected in his knowledge. He also demonstrates his love toward the human race continuously. Jeremiah 31.3, we read the Lord. Uh, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And so we have a number of other passages that emphasize God uh, being loved. So he is a rational God. He is a loving God. He is a God who has created us for the purpose of having a personal relationship. Second thing we understand and must understand is that God is the creator of the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them, and especially Israel, emphasized in the Scripture. But as the creator, he designed it in detail, in microscopic detail. God designed everything because he has a plan and he has a purpose. And as the creator, he is also the ruler of the heavens and the earth. In Exodus 20, verse 11, which is one of the Ten Commandments relating to the explanation of why the Jewish people were to rest on the seventh day on Shabbat, and God says, for he set a pattern. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and most of the things that are in them, the rest of them evolved. Doesn't say that, does it? Says that God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, all that is in them, in six days, six 24-hour days, because if they were longer periods of time, then somebody could come along and say, well, those days are 100,000 years long. So for 600,000 years, I can work. I don't have to rest until the 700,000th year. Doesn't work, does it? This commandment becomes meaningless unless those are six 24-hour consecutive days because that's the pattern that's supposed to be followed. We see other things, passages that emphasize the fact that he is a creator. In Isaiah 43, 15, we read, I am the Lord, the Holy One. Now, we've studied this word kadosh for holy, and it emphasizes God as the unique one, the one-of-a-kind one. There is none like him. Many of you have heard that holiness has to do with God's righteousness and his justice. Holiness is that God is unique in his sovereignty. God is unique in his righteousness. God is unique in his justice. God is unique in his love. God is unique in his eternality, in his immutability, in his veracity, in his knowledge. He is unique. He's omniscient. No, other, no creature is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. All, all of those. He's unique in every every single area. So he says, "I am Yahweh, your un, the unique one, the Creator of Israel, your King." So that Israel, in a time like this today, when the people of Israel are under threat, we are reminded that God created them for a purpose, and that He has made promises to Israel that He will keep. Because in omniscience, he knows what he can promise and what he can keep. And he's not going to promise what he can't fulfill. And so we know that they can trust God and God will provide for them. Isaiah forty-five twelve, God says, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens. 
and all their host, all their armies, I have commanded. Isaiah 44, 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. See, God says he is the Redeemer of Israel. I am the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. And Isaiah uh, 45, 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. He's a one of a kind. He is unique. He is holy. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And third, God wants us to know him personally. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. God wants to have a personal relationship with every one of us. But God is also perfectly righteous. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? And then in Psalm 111, verse 3, his work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. The righteousness of God undergirds all of Scripture. How can a man make, be made right, declared right before God? Second, God cannot have a personal relationship with us after Adam's sin because we are sinful and separated from him. And this is laid out in all of Scripture. For example, we are said all to be sinful in Ecclesiastes 7.20. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, King Solomon, the son of King David. And there it reads in English translation, for there is not a just man, but the word there is setic. And it should be translated, for there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. In Psalm 14, 2 and 3, we read, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, not one. In Isaiah 64, 6, again we read, But we... That includes the prophet Isaiah, are all, all, that's pretty universal. That means without exception, we are all an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, the best that we have to offer. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. So the consequences of sin is death. That's laid out at the beginning of Scripture. But it's not physical death. It is separation from God, who is life, life itself. And we're separated from him so that although Adam and Eve did not die physically immediately, they eventually did. It's like um, uh, a lot of times that you may have something is running on a battery and it eventually runs out. It's got a source of energy. You can sometimes turn lights off, and they'll stay on for a while, and then they go off. Uh, we're cut off from the source of life. So it's not a physical death. It's a spiritual separation that eventually results in physical death. In Genesis 2.17, God said to Adam, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day... See, not 930 years later when Adam died physically, but in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he didn't die physically. He died spiritually, separated from God. As a result of that, when Adam and Eve sinned, then God drove out the man and he placed cherubs, an army of cherubs surrounding the garden and uh a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. 
In Ezekiel 18.20, we read, The soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel is another of the later prophets around the time of the uh, Babylonian uh, invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. And then in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face. See, spiritual death is separation from God, and sin separates us from God. And so we all come into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. Now, the third thing is, because we're spiritually dead, because all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, uh, God does not accept our own efforts to remove our sin. God does not accept our morality. It's like physical, uh, it, it, it's, it's like an unclean thing. It's, it's righteousness that's like filthy rags. God does not accept our own efforts. Isaiah 64, 6 makes this very, very clear, as I've said. Jeremiah 2.22 says, Your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. He knows our sins, and they separate us from God. And Jeremiah 2.22, that's what passage I just read. The fourth point is that because God loves us, he himself provided the way for our sins to be removed. See, we couldn't clean ourselves. We couldn't wash ourselves clean because we as unclean cannot clean ourselves. God is the one who provides it. That's the grace of God. All through the Hebrew scriptures, the emphasis is on his mercy, his loving kindness, his chesed love. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 3, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God draws us, Isaiah says, through his word, through the Holy Spirit, and through the nonverbal revelation of himself in his creation. So God loves us. Second thing we see here is that God himself provided the way for our sins to be totally removed, forgiven, and forgotten. Again, Isaiah, who wrote around 700 to 740 B.C., long before there was uh, the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem the first time, you know, long before many of the other prophecies were given, yet Isaiah gives us uh, much more. In Isaiah 43, 25, he said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Now, he gave sacrifices that would picture how it would be done, but he said he's the one who blots out our sins. And then he says, and I will not remember your sin. Now, I know most of you have a problem because you remember some of your sins and you're still shocked by them. God doesn't remember them. You confess your sin. He cleanses you of all unrighteousness and removes your sins as far as the east is from the west. When we bring them back up, when we dredge them back up again, either through guilt or just memory, we're just repeating them again. And it's like we're saying, God, I really don't believe what you said in First John 1, 9, so um, I've got to wallow in my guilt for a while. And uh, that's just another sin. So we have to confess that and then move on. Fifth point is that God pro provided... Uh, solution through a blood sacrifice. In the Old Testament, there were many different sacrifices. And in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, the Scripture says in a very, very abbreviated statement that God clothed them with animal skins. It's real easy to read past that, and I went over this in detail on Tuesday night when I went through teaching about justification. But as someone who is a hunter and uh, does all of the butchering and cleaning and preparation and everything of the animal, uh, it takes a long time. It's a lot of blood. It's dirty. It's messy. Once you have the hide, you have to treat it. Uh, you have to clean it really well, and then you have to treat it in certain ways so that the leather will be supple and you'll be able to dress, use it for clothing. 
Otherwise, it will become very hard and very brittle very quickly, and it's unusable after that. And so I think that this took maybe a couple of days in order for uh, God to teach them everything that they needed to know about sacrifices. But, but as I pointed out Tuesday night, there's a lot that is covered uh, before the flood. You're talking about a period of 1,700, 800 years, and it, only about four or five people were told about, if that, in detail. Uh, and so much is left out. We're just told this matter just enough because God's tracing why he had to call Abraham and why he called the Jewish people. That's what's going on there. And then he had to begin to teach them about sacrifice, and that's in the Mosaic Law. And he explains sacrifice more fully there. And in Leviticus 17.11, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar. And it's translated in a lot of translations to make atonement. But the word atonement, look at it. It is A-T-O-N-E. M-E-N-T, three syllables, at one mint. It was a manufactured, made-up, coined uh, English word to explain the totality of what Christ did on the cross, and it really focuses sort of on reconciliation, which, of course, is related to peace with God. And the Hebrew rabbis that translated the uh, Hebrew Old Testament into, um, into Greek called the Septuagint, uh, they used a word predominantly, they used two words, one related to propitiation, satisfying God's holiness and righteous demands, and the other word was cleansing, okay? And I think in a lot of these places, it has more the idea of cleansing than propitiation. And so God says, I gave you this sacrifice for the cleansing for your souls, for it is the blood that makes a cleansing for sin for the soul. Sixth point, these animal sacrifices were provided, or they provided only a temporary covering or cleansing. Actually, the word covering was an older translation that it probably doesn't hold up. So these animal sacrifices were substitutes. Okay, so what would happen is a person would, that would get a lamb that's without spot or blemish indicating that this that the one it pictured it, the savior the messiah would have to be sinless and they would put their hand on it which is a visual picture of transferring their sin to that innocent lamb and then the lamb would be killed sacrificed it's a substitute so that they didn't have to be killed or they did not have to have to die and so that is the picture that it is that provides cleansing for sin. Leviticus 16.34 says, Thus shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement or to make cleansing for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. That refers to Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. In Isaiah 53.6, we see the explanation of this servant. Some places my servant relates to Israel. Some places my servant describes Isaiah. But here it describes an individual who is distinct from the people. Okay, so this is an individual, and individual singular pronouns are used to refer to him. So Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. In other words, we're all sinners. We've all gone astray. There's no exception. And the Lord has laid on him, individual, him, not them, the iniquity of us all. So if we here, primarily in the immediate context, refers to the Jewish people to refer to Israel, then um, they can't lay their own sins on themselves. So that's why it has to be an individual separate from the people. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. It's that substitutionary idea. And then verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you 
Isaiah says, you referring to Yahweh, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. We'll see that there is, that's a reference to resurrection. Genesis twenty-two thirteen, when Abram, Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, stop. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering as a substitute for his son Isaac. And Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide as it is to this day. And that is, on the location of that is on the Temple Mount. God provided a substitute for Isaac. Seventh, we see that God provided a permanent removal of our sin through the promised Messiah who dies as a substitute for the sin of the world. We see throughout the scriptures that the Messiah dies in our place. Isaiah 53, 4 says, He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. In verse 5, it goes on, he was wounded for our transgressions. The one who is without sin is wounded for us in our place. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement or the punishment for our peace. How do you get peace? You have to be made righteous with God first. By his, uh, by his, our, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It goes on in verse 11 to say, he shall see the labor of his soul. He being God the Father shall see the labor of the soul of his servant and be satisfied. That's related to propitiation, that God's righteousness is satisfied. Now, God's righteousness couldn't be satisfied by the death of someone unrighteous. It would have to be satisfied by someone who was righteous in all ways. And then Isaiah says, by his knowledge, that is, by knowing about the the servant, uh, by his knowledge, my righteous... Oh, yeah, by knowing... Okay, here's how it works. By his knowledge, by knowing about the righteous servant... Uh, my righteous servant shall make righteous. You have to know what the servant did to be made righteous. That's what that is saying. For he that is the righteous servant shall bear their iniquities. So because he bore our iniquities, he is able to impute his righteousness to us. Isaiah fifty three twelve goes on to uh, explain that. And then we'll get to the next point. The Messiah then rose from the dead in Isaiah 53.10, which I've already read. He shall see his seed after his death. He sees his descendants. That's talking about resurrection. And he shall prolong his days. He shall continue to live after he gives his life. He will be raised from the dead, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The Holy One refers to the Messiah. He would not become go into the grave and have his body go through decay. So our eighth point is this, drawing a conclusion. If, if all of our righteousnesses are filthy rags, if all our righteousnesses are good are are um, corrupt, and we are all sinners, separated by our sins from God. How can any of us have the kind of righteousness that God accepts? The premises are straight from Scripture. We are all sinners. Our righteousness, our morals, our rituals are are unworthy. They're unclean. How are we going to be declared righteous? This is pictured for us in Abraham. 
In Genesis 15, 6, we're told, and he, referring to Abraham, and correctly translated because it's referring to a previous event, he had already believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted or imputed it to him for righteousness. So that Abraham believed God, the promise that he had made to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, that the seed of the woman would destroy the seed of the serpent, and that that was the first indication of what the one to come would do. And it's interesting that when you study um, ancient Jewish literature, that that verse in Genesis 3.15 was understood up until uh, eight or 900 years into the Christian period to be a a prophecy of the Messiah and his destruction of Satan. Genesis 15, 6, he believed God so that justification or being declared righteous was based on faith. Habakkuk 2, 4. Now, Habakkuk or Habakkuk was not, was a prophet much later. And he said, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. His soul is not righteous. The arrogant one, his soul is not righteous. But the righteous, the Sadiq one, the one who has been declared righteous, shall live by his faith. Righteousness is by faith in the saving promise of God. Isaiah 53.10 tells us, Look at the second line. When you make his soul an offering from sin, God made the soul of the suffering servant a sacrifice for sin. And then in verse 11, he, the Lord, shall see the labor of his servant's soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall make righteous, shall declare righteous. His work is what's necessary in order to be declared righteous. For he, that is the righteous servant, shall bear their iniquities. As with Moses and David, God wants us to believe in the Messiah. That's it. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't be good enough, kind enough, loving enough, gentle enough, righteous enough, because none of that's good enough. God has to do it for us. Deuteronomy 18.15 made a promise that has always been understood by Jewish rabbis going back to uh, ancient times, uh, not so much in modern times, but in medieval and earlier, that this was a messianic prophecy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is talking. This is going to be a prophet like me, but someone greater. And it wasn't Joshua. He's not talking about Joshua. He will raise up a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you should listen to. That's a command. Listen to him. Psalm 2.7 says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. So someone is speaking. Who's speaking? It's the son of David. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a messianic prophecy. And so David then writes, Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So that is what we are to do, to put our trust in the Messiah. How do we know the Messiah? That's what we're going to look at some next week. Our final point, the Messiah is Yeshua of Nazareth, who fulfilled many more than 10 prophecies. He fulfilled close to 100 different prophecies. Why didn't he fulfill all of them? He didn't fulfill all of them because his messianic claims were rejected and he was crucified. But he will return again, he said, and just as he fulfilled the 100 that he fulfilled, literally, he will fulfill the rest of them literally. But in order to gain righteousness, we have to trust in God's provision of a righteous Messiah who has paid the penalty for our sins. And so I conclude with this 
sorry about that, with this final question. If you've never trusted in Yeshua as your Savior, if you've never looked honestly at the case for the Messiah as Jesus and the prophecies, we'll look at them next Sunday on Christmas Eve, at least a few of them. There's not time to go through all of them. Because at the time of Jesus, the shepherds, the magi, many, many others who knew the Hebrew scriptures were able to identify that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. In fact, up through the end of the first century, probably the majority of those who were Christians, according to historical records, were ethnic Jews because they had come to recognize that. In fact, one writer that I have read says that by the end of the second century, before Christian anti-Semitism began to develop, probably half of those who were Christians in the Roman Empire were ethnic Jews. They had read the Hebrew Scriptures and identified the signs of the Messiah. They knew how to recognize him, and they knew that Jesus was what John the Baptist declared him to be, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what is required to be righteous is simply to trust in Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says that that instant God declares us righteous because he imputes to us righteousness his righteousness, just as he imputed that righteousness to Abraham. And on that basis, Abraham was declared righteous. So when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we believe God's promise of completed salvation in in Jesus the Messiah, then we are declared to be righteous and we have eternal life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to Uh, go through this information in the scriptures and bring out uh, this whole plan of making us or declaring us, rather, to be righteous, that it is based on faith and faith alone. In the period of the Old Testament, the period before Christ, before Jesus, then it was based on believing the promise and anticipating the fulfillment of that promise, that you would provide righteousness. And with the coming of Jesus You have one who fulfilled those prophecies, those promises. It was evident in his life. It was evident in his uh, miracles. It was evident in his teaching that he was who he claimed to be. He was not a liar. He was not crazy. He was indeed who he claimed to be, and that is the eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So we pray that anyone listening to this now, listening Uh, online, listening in the future, that when they understand this, they will recognize what is needed, and that is simply for eternal life to trust in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, as the one who gives life and gives it abundantly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.